Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for this webcast that will be focusing on the importance of community consultations in the U.S. refugee resettlement process or network. Uh, my name is Margie McHugh. I'm the director of MPI's National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy, and I'll be moderating today's, uh, today's webcast. Uh, if we could advance. There we go. So um, just a few housekeeping uh, items. If you have any technical or other issues, uh, please email us at events at migrationpolicy.org. We'd uh, really love it if you would ask questions using the Q&A function throughout the webinar. It helps us sort of pull together uh, different topics that we can see that folks are most interested in. So please send those to events at migrationpolicy.org. And also, we always get questions about how people can uh, get access to the uh, to the report that we're releasing today and focusing on. Uh, but you can uh, you'll be able to find that on our website um, and also get the video uh, from today's event at the address that you see there on the screen. Uh, so um, so next slide. Um, and uh, I'll just say quickly in terms of the. Uh, the center itself and sort of why this report comes out of um, out of our Center on Immigrant Integration Policy. Uh, we've been ex in existence within MPI since 2007, and uh, we have a, a we, co we cover a lot of terrain, but I would say that the primary buckets of our work uh, fall into trying to support the success of immigrants and their families. And so we have a very heavy investment in early childhood education and care system policies and program approaches uh, in the education and training space more broadly, looking at elementary and secondary education, adult career, technical ed and workforce development systems, language access as it, as it affects all uh, types of systems and, uh, and program services and with a special, prof uh, uh, special focus on refugees and humanitarian populations. No surprise that, uh, no surprise with that in terms of the topic of today's report. Um, also, uh, also related to today's report, we have a very big interest in the governance of integration policy, how to have uh, the federal government as well as state and local governments be able to figure out how to create the brain circuitry that will allow them uh, to think in a from a sort of horizontal horizontal view across government agencies, policies, and programs about what needs to be done in order to adapt existing systems to respond effectively uh, to immigrant and refugee populations. Uh, so, with that, I'll turn more to today's report and uh, and our speakers. Next slide. Um, so, I'm very pleased that uh, that Lily Hinkle uh, has been able to get this report across the finish line uh, with the rest of the team here at MPI uh, as an associate policy analyst with our center focusing on these issues and with a long background herself focusing uh, even prior to coming to MPI on uh, refugee populations and being involved in the refugee resettlement system. Uh, delighted that Anna Marie Baina, from who is the senior vice president at U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants, uh, is able to join and share her uh, perspective and experiences from the perch that she's at. And then also uh, Boyana Zorich Martinez, who's the director of the Bureau of Refugee Programs with the Wisconsin Department of Children, uh, Children and Families, and the Wisconsin State Refugee Coordinator. Again, another person with uh, fantastic experience to be reflecting on the issues that we'll be speaking about today. Uh, so with that, I will be turning it over to Lily to give us a, a look at the uh, the broader report and the findings of it, and uh, and then also uh, be able to um, to give us some of the findings. So Lily, over to you. Awesome. Thanks, Margie. I'm really happy to be here today, and I'm going to speak a little bit about the report that MPI has just released called The um, Potential of Community Consultations in U.S. Refugee Resettlement. I'm going to share a handful of findings, promising practices, and recommendations before we hear from my fellow panelists on their experiences in the field. 
So the sequence of this report is much like the sequence of my remarks today. It defines consultation processes as they're federally mandated, but it also examines how these processes are experienced in practice, situating consultation in an evolving landscape of new actors and new populations. This report identifies key findings and presents recommendations for various stakeholders as informed by a wonderful group of study participants whom I am very appreciative of for sharing their insights. These participants represent a range of stakeholders at local, state, and federal levels, including individuals who work directly in resettlement, but also folks who are working in local systems that serve refugees amongst many other populations. So next slide, please. What is consultation. Many of you joining us are probably familiar with consultation, but for those who may not be, we're going to run through a quick crash course on the next slide. And apologies for the teeny tiny text on the table. There's a lot of ground to cover. So consultation in the context of refugee resettlement in the United States encompasses a few different federally mandated processes. To determine refugee admissions, the executive branch must consult with Congress before making its annual determination of the refugee ceiling. But because the inner workings of this process are not widely publicized beyond the State Department's final report to Congress, this report, this NPI report, focuses largely on the quarterly community consultations process, which I may at times throughout the course of this refer to as QCs or just quarterly consultations. Quarterly consultations are a process through which state refugee coordinators, as required by the Office of Refugee Resettlement and resettlement agencies, as required by the State Department's Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, consult with receiving communities regarding new arrivals and their capacity to resettle. As you can see on this table, there's a lot of similarities between these two processes, requiring nearly all of the same invitees and on the same quarterly cadence. On paper, QCs intend to discuss and plan for recent and projected refugee arrivals. However, this is not how it always plays out in the field. Next slide, please. So the issue of consultation has increased in saliency as resettlement and the immigration landscape more broadly has undergone some pretty significant shifts. Since 2001, 2021, we've seen the arrival of new populations like Afghan and Ukrainian humanitarian parolees and significant upticks in the arrival of familiar populations like asylum seekers and unaccompanied children released to sponsors in the United States. In addition to these increasing numbers across the board, the resettlement program is adjusting to new actors performing resettlement between private sponsor groups and financial supporters for certain population-specific parole program beneficiaries. There are more people outside of the resettlement circles traditionally navigating local integration systems, arguably than ever before. And all of this, too, is taking place as resettlement continues to scale up to meet the need that the presidential ceiling has been set at. And this is all happening amidst United for Ukraine operations and in the wake of Operation Allies Welcome to emergency resettlement initiatives. And though this period of reconstruction continues, the effects of Trump era policies and the coronavirus pandemic are still being felt across systems and the resettlement network as they try to recover from losing offices, losing staff during a rather turbulent time in resettlement. Next slide, please. So given the context of this evolving landscape, which I know at times can feel like a moving target, the importance of effective coordination and sensible communication really cannot be understated. So one of our first findings underlines this urgency, revealing that relationship building outside of QCs is critical to resettlement. Consultation in most places establishes a baseline where at least four times a year, key stakeholders gather to talk about resettlement. But as many study participants suggest, consultation is actually happening all the time in many places because of how deeply relational resettlement is. Examples of this can look like phone calls that are standing between community leaders, monthly forum meetings, newsletters shared across community members. It's this sort of informal consultation that can be used to account for some of the things that formal quarterly consultations cannot always account for. So MPI found that consultations can often be perceived as too confined, 
unable to account for other populations impacting a community's capacity or issues impacting refugee populations well beyond their first five years in the country. For some cons consultation participants, refugees make up an increasingly small part of their client base. And in instances where consultations can account for a wider diversity of immigrant populations or longer term integration issues, collective understandings of bandwidth or areas of concern are generally a bit more comprehensive. One area of interest that has emerged in the past two years is the introduction of private sponsors and other sponsorship-like mechanisms. Some folks have articulated concerns about private sponsors not receiving training that is localized enough to where they will be resettling and others fear that resettlement, the resettlement network is going to be tasked with providing core services on very short notice in the instance of a breakdown of a sponsor relationship or sponsor breakdown. And while it remains to be seen, whether consultation is the best means of communicating or coordinating with some of these new resettlement actors, many seasoned resettlement professionals and other stakeholders agree that opportunities to consult with these groups are necessary. The last finding that I would highlight from the report is that oftentimes valuable information is shared during consultations, but it's not always seen to be taken into account during decision making. This perception can contribute to consultation being perceived as a box ticking exercise rather than a genuine opportunity for two-way dialogue regarding where refugees ultimately end up resettling. And some participants feel that consultation can be an exercise of, of reaction to numbers that are being told at the, at the quarterly consultations rather than a proactive opportunity to articulate bandwidth issues that have legitimate impact on, on the refugee allocations process. And this could be a result of several factors coming from the session itself, like fixed agenda requirements or incomplete participation, or contributes to fact or is a uh, reason of factors outside of the session, like administrative per capita funding structures, that are related to the ways in which we propose numbers and allocate funding to resettlement agencies. So on the next slide, I'm going to run through some of the recommendations and the promising practices that the report highlights. Um, based on, on the findings, I've selected these particular promising practices that may be helpful to improve consultation and uh, also perceptions of participant buy-in of the process but there are several others featured in the report that I would encourage everyone to check out. The first recommendation is built upon the promising practice of co-convened quarterly consultations, which is a practice that's already happening in a lot of states and localities. Given the similarities between the processes required by PRM and ORR respectively, I would suggest a streamlined co-convened process. While it doesn't work in every state or municipality, QCs that are jointly convened or alternating responsibility between state refugee coordinators and local resettlement agencies are generally more effective for a couple of reasons. Namely, the administrative responsibility of planning and convening consultation is shared. Uh, it offers a balance of that local and state level perspective, and it streamlines the process and flow of information out into the community and vice versa. I understand that ORR alongside PRM are currently considering streamlining the process as the report recommends, pending comments on a notice of intent to change the language that we see in ORR state plan currently. While co-convening can relieve some of this administrative burden, it also is recommended in the report that ORR and PRM designate funding to support ongoing consultation activities. In state refugee offices and resettlement agencies that are able to hire staff solely dedicated to consultation and other forms of community engagement, the QCs are generally found to be more efficient and more comprehensive. In response to issues of saliency, it is suggested that consultation conveners consider expanding information sharing during consultation to include things like data on populations outside of the traditional refugee reception and placement program to build a more full profile of the local capacity and newcomer population. This is particularly important because while there are 
notable differences in admission pathways and eligibility for certain services and benefits amongst humanitarian populations. Many of them are sharing the same classrooms, the same health clinics, housing complexes, and labor market opportunities. And this recommendation calls on a number of stakeholders to improve data and information sharing. One example of which is USCIS sharing the intended destination of parolees from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, and Ukrainian humanitarian parolees. Lastly, the report recommends the establishment of regular channels of communication with new resettlement actors, whether that be through formal consultation, if that's what works in a municipality, or through other means of engagement like training sessions facilitated by a state refugee coordinator or the local resettlement agency at their discretion. This is to ensure that localized information is delivered to new actors, it's to prevent sponsor breakdowns, and it's to ensure that local systems and resettlement agencies can better anticipate the arrival of certain humanitarian populations in their state or locality. I'd like to end really quickly just by saying that I truly believe consultation is instrumental to newcomer integration, the existing QC infrastructure, if expanded, adapted, and better resourced, could be an opportunity for communities to meet this new era of new actors, populations, and reconstruction with a collaborative spirit that I think resettlement truly, truly thrives on. And with that, I'll turn it over to Margie to introduce our, our next panelist. Great, Lily. Thanks so much. Um... There we go. So, uh, so now it's my uh, pleasure to welcome uh, Anna Marie Baina, uh, who's the senior VP at U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants, um, to uh, to share some of her uh, thoughts and experiences with her. But before with us, but before that, I'll just say um, quickly that she brings over 25 years of experience to these issues. And for any of you who don't already know uh, what U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigrants is, um, it's one of the national uh, voluntary organizations that partners with the federal government uh, to actually undertake refugee resettlement in the U.S. And uh, you can see here on the slide um, that, I don't know, she has a pretty intimidating job, <laughs> a set of responsibilities um, with so much going on in an organization that uh, that operates at that level. Um, and uh, before I turn it over um, to you, Anna Marie, I just want to say to everyone who's listening in, uh, please keep the questions coming in. It's great to see them already and just very helpful for us to um, to have them so that we can move uh, as efficiently as possible through the um, Q&A session at the end. But with that, um, Anne-Marie, welcome again. And um, we'd just love to, um, I mean, uh, you're uh, very um, uh, sophisticated already in um, uh, uh, being in situations like this, but uh, but anything you wanna um, pick up on that Lily said, but also if you could just give us a little bit of background about how consultation kind of plays out already within your network, just to do that context setting. Uh, before you just uh, jump in on any of the um, issues and questions that Lily raised. All right, thank you, Margie. And, and thank you, Lily. Thank you for asking me to participate and also for the wonderful report. I think that it is, it's very timely and I'm happy that we're here to discuss it. So I, I do wanna start an even broader context, even than what I do here at USCRI, and I feel like it's almost a confession um, because I have been at USCRI for five years, but prior to being at USCRI, I worked for the federal government for 20 years. And during that time, I was working on refugee resettlement and immigration issues. So I believe that a lot of my thoughts and my perspective on consultations have, has come from that experience in the federal government. And the other thing is that while I was at Health and Human Services, that's where I was, I spent probably 15 of my 20 years in the office of the general counsel. So my focus was often just on kind of that dry legal perspective of the consultation provisions. Um, but also I advised ORR. So I advised the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And during the time that I was there, 
they had so much litigation and issues on other programming like unaccompanied children and trafficking in persons that oftentimes refugee resettlement was not getting that same attention. I will say that there were two particular periods and I wanna bring them up because I think they play into our discussion um, where I really focused on the consultation provisions. One of them earlier in my career and one right after I left the federal government. So the first was in 2009 and, and also like the preceding two couple of years. There was really very limited consultation going on at all federally, state, locally, you know, I don't, I won't say there was no consultation, but there was so little consultation between the Office of Refugee Resettlement and the State Department's PRM that it, it really was a hindrance, I think, to the program. And I think that State Department became quite aware that folks were concerned about this and convened a, a review and they had invited a handful of state refugee coordinators. I can't remember all of them that were there, um, but a number of the resettlement agencies and ORR and PRM, and they came together and there was a real, uh, you know, I won't say outcry, but definitely strong feelings by state refugee coordinators that they just weren't being included and it was doing a disservice to refugee resettlement. And of course, I think that at the time, the Office of Refugee Resettlement felt very much the same way. And so everyone really wanted to ensure this coordination. I feel like those were the beginnings of some of the changes in the policies that, that followed and also a GA, GAO report and some individual reports by, by different agencies. So that was kind of, that was like a, a one extreme where I really feel like the consultation was missing. And the second time that I think about is in 2019, right shortly after I left the federal government, uh, President Trump issued an executive order. And in that executive order, it required the states to actually consent to having refugees resettled in their state, which basically is like a, you know, a veto. You know, we don't want refugees here and allowing the states to, to do that. And of course, from my perspective, that is a dramatic and completely inappropriate swing and a misuse of that provision of the law. And it didn't ultimately turn out to be to be used. But I think it is important to, to look at that. And, and that's what I meant about when I was talking about Lily's report being so timely. Today, you know, if you're if you turn on the news today or you look at social media anywhere we're talking about other newcomer populations with states being very anti those groups and states really pushing back on new arrivals. And, and in 2019, that happened through an executive order uh, on refugee resettlement. And I, I think those two dramatic turns are what, when I think back on my government time, what I think about on consultation. And so now that I am at USCRI, I, I believe that there's an attempt now to make the consultation provisions work. I don't think we're at either of uh, those dramatic ends of the spectrum. And for USCRI, for me, from where I sit, I'm at our headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. And USCRI has local resettlement through its own field offices. So we have a lot of field offices across the country, and we also have partner agencies. We call them partners or affiliates. They're really sub-grantees. So we fund local resettlement organizations to do resettlement all across the country. And I feel like all together, we may have 40 with the field offices and our affiliates. So those folks are really the ones that are doing the consultations with state refugee coordinators, the health coordinators, the local communities, the local service providers. Um, and what we have at USCRI, you know, we're requiring our affiliates and our field offices to report to us here at headquarters, have you done the quarterly consultation? Who is there? And going through the requirements that we have from State Department on, on the consultation provisions. And then we take that report and we give it to state and say, yes, here's what happened with the consultations. 
So it very, it very much, I think that there's a piece in Lily's report where it talks about checking a box. And for me sitting at headquarters right now, I do feel that a lot of that consultation that's going on is that box checking. And some of that may be because of where I sit, but I also feel like as it's making its way from local to the National Resettlement Agency, then to be, you know, by the time we go through all of that, it really does feel like box checking. And I would say I totally agree with Lily about the worthwhile consultations that happen in refugee resettlement usually occur more organically. So when we know we need someone else's expertise or their knowledge, it's picking up the phone and it's it's the it's the informal as opposed to the requirement and the box checking. And those consultations are more meaningful. And another time that I feel like we've had that meaningful consultation and 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 obviously everything here I'm thinking in the back of my head, there are about 20 things I could say to oppose my position on this in, in the back of my head. And this this piece is probably one of them, but I felt when we had the Afghan and Ukrainian parolees coming in, obviously the Afghan situation and the Ukrainian situation are not smooth. You know, we're all here to agree that we know that that's true. But I think that at that period, we did see some excellent consultation and collaboration. And in particular, I really appreciated ORR just had a Friday meeting and everybody was there health coordinators, all the reset, all the federal government agencies. I mean, the fact that we had all federal government agencies and the state, like everyone together. And there was important information shared. It was kind of like you had to be at that Friday meeting. We had, there, there was a real sense of purpose about working together because of what we were trying to accomplish. Um, but, it, but it was a crisis. So it's like, well, we got to be there because it's a crisis. And For me, the question about consultation, in addition to those informal consultations, for me, it's about how do we get everyone who's involved in resettlement to really feel that sense of purpose about working together? Because you don't have the same, you know, on a daily basis when it's not a crisis, you don't have that, oh my gosh, the massive fail does not come up like a red flag, where where I feel as during that crisis period, certainly there were lots of red flags and issues. So I'm trying to think about how we can make that consultation with this feeling of purpose um, and the the feeling of purpose about the need to work together, not for resettlement, because I think we all share that purpose for sure. Um, I don't think the way that the consultation is written in the law is serving us well anymore. So, and if you think about it, I mean, the Refugee Act was passed in 1980. It's 2023. So it's really, when I look at it, I feel like it's very much a throwback, that provision of the law. And certainly, Lily already talked about the requirements in the State Department's cooperative agreements with the resettlement agencies, and then the Office of Refugee Resettlement's requirements for the state refugee coordinators. And again, to me, these feel more like a laundry list. Um, You know, what we're supposed to be talking about. And I don't really know if those points of discussion in those laundry lists are really always necessary anymore. I also think that we need a sense of balance because I talked about those two extremes before. I think that if PRM is consulting with the state refugee coordinators, and of course they are required by law to take into account what that the state refugee coordinators are recommending. So the fact that that was not happening for quite some time, little footnote there, but they're required to take them into account. And then of course the state department also receives our applications, the resettlement agencies, so they get a lot of information from us. And I think it's really hard to do, but I feel like they, the input needs to have equal value there. We really have to look at them both. And ultimately, the federal government needs to make the decisions about placement. And the same with ORR and their decision-making. It's a federal government decision. 
And, and I focus on that because I do fear the slippery slope a little bit with the incoming populations, that if we allow too much state and local to have too much input on resettlement conditions, we may veer off in a, in a bad direction again. But I, I, I don't have any brilliant suggestions. I, I read the recommendations in the report and think that they are excellent. And I think to build on that, I would say that my hope is that the consultations could be less about state refugee coordinators and resettlement agencies and more about the community involvement. So talking about the schools and health clinics and community organizations. So in other words, having the state refugee coordinators and the resettlement agencies together walking side by side and doing more about sharing our knowledge about refugees and really what they can do that's positive for communities. So almost like an outreach as opposed to having it be, uh, 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 what do I want to say, that, that checkbox. So really more of an outreach, positive, sharing about refugees um, and, and working, working together. And so I will leave it there because I know we have lots more to cover. Thank you. Great. Um, that was um, really uh, thought-provoking and uh, helpful, Anna-Marie. So um, what a tee up for you, Boyana. <laughs> um, so uh, so um, I'll just say, um, I briefly already said uh, that Boyana was the uh, director of the Bureau of Refugee Programs with the Department, uh, Wisconsin Department of Children and Families. Um, she's also the Wisconsin State Refugee Coordinator, and uh, and it's a very um, very busy and connected position um, as the state coordinator positions are uh, with trying to both represent towards the rest of the state government and also with communities um, a lot of the issues and the problem solving that's uh, often needed to address refugee resettlement needs. But also, um, she serves on the executive board of the State Coordinators of Refugee Resettlement, also known as SCORE. That's the National Association for State Refugee Coordinators, Administrators, and Managers. And um, so we were delighted um, that she was able to join us today, given all of the, um, uh, just the sort of 360 view she has also as a refugee, um, a former refugee herself, um, of all the issues that we're talking about today. So, uh, Boyana, just uh, delighted to have you um, join us and, and share your thoughts as well about this uh, whole process of consultation and what it might achieve and how it might need to be, um, how it might need to be adjusted in order to get the sort of the right inputs and outputs from it. Thank you, Margie. Hello, everyone. Uh, it is always so be good to be in your company, Margie and Lily and Anna Marie, of course. Um, Anna Marie, I don't know if you if you saw me, but I kept nodding to pretty much everything you said. Uh, definitely in agreement with uh, with uh, all the things that you've pointed out, and it's just so good to have all the different perspectives. Uh, so as uh, Margie said, my name is Buena Zoric Martinez, and I play a couple of different roles within both our state government and then also uh, nationally. Um, uh, we are a, Wisconsin is a state administered state, which means that really uh, the, the responsibility of the state refugee uh, program, resettlement program lives within the state government. And so we are federally funded by the Office of Refugee Resettlement that was uh, reference before. And again, it's great to see the parallel of how the National Resettlement Agency like USCRI function under the umbrella of the Department of State and then how the state refugee coordinators function under the umbrella of ORR. So again, great perspectives. Um, so my uh, bureau, the Bureau of Refugee Programs with the Wisconsin Department of Children and Families uh, is lives within uh, one of the state agencies that, again, helps to uh, direct the funds and then uh, monitor for compliance and performance of the different stakeholders and different contractors that we partner with in order to provide direct services to refugees. Uh, my bureau is um, uh, about 14 people strong, 
And uh, there are, there's contract managers who are responsible to directly working with resettlement agencies and other partners, uh, as well as our data support and, and whatnot. And we have the state refugee coordinator, state refugee health coordinator, um, as well as the um, policy advisor for new Americans on our team as well. So just to kind of give you a little perspective of our team within, within the state government. So we do follow the two sets of uh, consultation requirements, although looking at the re MPI's report, uh, three different <laughs> consultations are really outlined. Uh, in my mind, it was always that the annual uh, consultation lived within the QCs, but um, it's good to clarify that that in fact is a, a separate requirement. And so for those uh, different uh, requirements and within our state, um, we do several different things. And uh, one is the quarterly consultations that are uh, put together by the resettlement organizations. We have five different regions within the state of Wisconsin where resettlement is primarily happening. So those five localities do their own quarterly consultations. So you can imagine five times four, there's 20 consultations within the state. And my team and I participate in those, but it's a little hard to be at every consultation <laughs> um, every single time. But somebody from, from our team typically participates in those. And um, as of most recently, we've been a little more engaged uh, as uh, MPI report suggests, to really co-convene and be a little bit more of an active participant in those and not necessarily just, or have a say in what is being discussed and bringing things forward as opposed to just participating and reporting out. On the other hand, in our state, we have what we call Refugee Advisory Council, and that was primarily to meet the consultation requirements by the ORR. And this was again before my time. So uh, when I came on board, kind of adopted that model where uh, the Refugee Advisory Council uh, meets four times or quarterly across the state. And we travel from region to region and engage with leadership leaders from all the different organizations and stakeholders, uh, technical college systems, um, our uh, workforce uh, agencies, our TANF agencies, um, and other partners who provide direct services to refugees. But this is more so a leadership type structure uh, to engage with the state refugee coordinators, coordinator and advise the state refugee coordinator of what is happening in the state. That particular body uh, forms uh, different levels of subcommittees that specifically focus then, uh, that branch out and focus on things like housing and education and mental health and so on. So um, we've identified over time some challenges with both, um, with QCs and particularly, as Anna Marie said, and the report by MPI, it feels like there is a, a check a box, a formality of just you know, having to attend the QC and not necessarily engage in a way that feels more productive. No staffing is dedicated to planning, again, to the point that Lily has made about, uh, you know, sometimes it feels like an afterthought. Sometimes it feels like it's the last minute put together because there are just not resources in the staffing to put into that. So people who are already doing a gazillion other things now are tasked to, do, to put together quarterly consultations as well. Um, feels like a one-way communication to prescriptive, not necessarily time for dialogue. And we struggle with including the refugee voice in the conversations, no space for problem solving, and quite frankly, not aligned with, uh, with the annual consult consultation. So sometimes the timing is off to when the abstracts are done and so on. And sometimes lack of engagement from local officials lack of resources and not necessarily being inclusive of human humanitarian parolees and other populations that we've been seeing recently. And I'll address that in a minute as well. But those are some of the challenges that we found with QCs over time. And then similarly with the Refugee Advisory Council, no staffing and resources dedicated to putting together RACs. So again, it feels very much something that we need to do as opposed to something that we want to do to proactively think and talk about how to address the needs of the incoming population. We're struggling to find the right balance about how the big of the table needs to be. It includes leaders only. So question is how, uh, you know, how much of that travels down to the front staff? Um, and then again, lack of information and data on humanitarian parolees and other populations that are, that are coming to our state. 
So in all that, we've learned that the consultations cannot be quarterly. As there's so much going on, we cannot just rely on quarterly consultations for the information to travel. Um, so much going on and things are changing so frequently that they must be ongoing if we want to ensure that, again, the communication travel uh, travels, that we are problem solving and addressing the real needs of the populations that, again, we're seeing in our states. So in our state, we created different platforms in order to make sure that, again, that consultation is happening, not just quarterly, but happening monthly, happening weekly, happening biweekly. Um, and so when COVID first started, we uh, put together and we all went uh, remote for the most part. Uh, we put together what was at first weekly uh, contractor calls. We called it contractor calls later on, stakeholder calls. And now those are monthly calls where the state uh, state refugee coordinators, state refugee health coordinators provide information virtually and then engage with stakeholders across the state to be able to, to, to give information to problem solve and raise questions and concerns on specific areas uh, that they're struggling with. With the uh, Operations Allies Welcome and with all the different alternative models that were created for sponsorship circles, institutional partnerships, community partnerships, we felt like we had to engage with those with those different groups and we had to do consultations specifically geared towards their needs because they did not know much about how resettlement works. In Wisconsin, we've been doing resettlement formally since 1975 and there's very well um, established models for doing resettlement, yet these different partnerships, these different sponsorship circles and private groups did not really know what those shortcuts were, how to, you know, do certain things that, again, we've been doing for almost 50 years. Um, so we stood up these meetings with just the alternative pathways uh, groups so that we can, again, educate and engage with them and provide resources and connect them to the right people. Uh, we've also instituted biweekly refugee uh, directors meeting, refugee resettlement agencies directors meeting, where I meet, in fact, just after this, I'm meeting with the directors of the refugee resettlement agencies across the state to, again, discuss those things on different levels and to make sure that their needs, needs are met and then we talk about issues. Uh, like some of the things that we're currently dealing with with certain groups that are not necessarily pro-immigration and pro-refugees in our state. So a lot of different issues that we deal with as they come, but then think about, you know, consultations, think about the numbers, think about changing environments. Um, and then uh, I've worked very hard with uh, CSH and Welcome Corps to make sure that uh, we have some level of information uh, shared and data shared on those groups that are that are establishing in our state as private sponsorship groups, and then having connections with the private sponsorship organizations who are acting again in our in my in our state to be able to uh, sit down and talk to them about the things that they know and the things that they don't know about resettlement. So when they're you know, uh, approved to welcome people from from different parts of the world, what is it that how is it that we can connect and provide those resources as, as, again, the state entity that's been doing this for a very long time? And then um, we have immigration advocacy groups that we engage with directly with the governor's office to now talk about these other populations, because it's not all about the refugees and SIVs. We now have learned that they're a portion of what we are welcoming and will be welcoming in our state, but there's so much more that is out there. And so I personally encourage my contract managers to know how their agencies breathe. And I do believe that this is in the report as well. By knowing how each one of these contractors are doing their work and what their needs are real time really gets us, helps us get in front of the issues as supposed to react to them. So again, consultations cannot be quarterly in the ever-changing environment. We have to figure out ways to engage uh, Anna Marie brought up Executive Order 13888, which in, if you woke me up in the middle of the night, I will know it. Um, that was a, a huge shock to all of us. But it also was a silver lining because for a lot of us who were not necessarily engaged with our local officials, it gave us the opportunity to get on the road and talk and advocate and support and provide education and get our allies uh, um, um, to, to really understand what this means and how we can work together to make our communities better. So 
there is a lot that I could talk about. I know we're at time. And so I'm going to give time, time for questions, but this is definitely a great opportunity to engage in a conversation like this. And I'm very grateful. And um, my overall take is that we in Wisconsin, again, are doing, uh, I believe, a great job with consultations only because we've taken it up a notch and not necessarily only relied in, on, the, on the prescribed quarterly uh, conversations, but rather instituted our own ways to continuously communicate. Right. Well, Boyana and Anna Marie, thank you both for such um, incredibly meaty um, uh, responses here and putting so many issues on the table. Um, definitely um, uh, encourage all of you who are um, listening in and um, joining us for this to, to continue sending in questions. Um, but I'll just try and combine a few of them right now uh, for um, uh, all three of you to um, <clears throat> Uh, to uh, address, but I think this this first one is more for um, Anna Marie or Boyana. Um, there's a few questions about um, how to how to involve particular types of agencies. Sorry, <clears throat> um, in consultation, and I don't know if that I you know as we hear these questions from around the country at other times. It's sometimes folks who are in states who um, feel that a system like um, adult education or, um, you know, family literacy or citizenship preparation classes and the like um, are already serving such a small number of people. And I think they hope that if they were in the table at the table for consultations, you know, that they might um, actually get more support. I might be reading the wrong stuff into getting this question just now as part of the um the webinar, but I see it in other um in other networks that I'm part of. And so there was a question about that, like um uh, do you have any ideas? Uh, well, first of all, do you have any specific ways that um, that you think are good ones that agencies are proactively taking in order to involve um, those service systems? And then there's also a question about um, public safety uh, systems and their involvement. And uh, and so I I think maybe the best way to frame it for the two of you just um, is first of all, you know, do you have any particular um, examples of ways that they're included, but then I think particularly on the adult ed and um, uh, family and citizenship prep and the like, um, we're always pointing out that those systems currently meet less about 4% of need nationally. And so I think the um, the question of is there, you know, is there a, a, any kind of point of leverage here um, via consultation for having some of those uh, uh, systems get some of the help they need to meet the the needs of um, of incoming populations. Um, you know, just if you could address those a bit, that would be great. All right, it looks like I'm unmuted, so I will I will take a shot first. I think that the question was going towards what I was saying at the end when I was talking about how my hope for consultations you know, to really take it down to those local communities, the the local community uh, organizations, like they're talking about um, in the question and having, you know, the state refugee coordinators with the experience and the resettlement agencies with the experience go out to share our knowledge about refugees and what they can do that's positive for the community. Um, you know, that's more what in my mind the consultations need to move to at this point to to reach out to those other local organizations and certainly public safety organizations as well. Like more of an outreach and educational uh, type of consultation coming from from resettlement agencies and SRCs. And then I think I should to defer to Boyana about, you know, actual practices and what may be happening locally. Yeah, thank you, Anna Marie. Um, so um I think I think it all falls on relationship building. I do believe that the role of the SRCs have changed over time and then especially in the last two or three years with the operations allies welcome and you for you and some of these other alternative pathways and whatnot that put SRCs really uh in the middle of it. Uh that 
in a lot of ways, we are the center of gravity for, for, for all things refugee resettlement in our state. And I think it really is all about relationship building with, uh, especially if you're placed in a, in a, in the state government, like we are, uh, not all states are, there's about 15 states out there who, uh, whose state refugee offices live within the des replacement designees, which means that a resettlement agency really takes on that role. So they may not have those relationships that we do in our state as, as a state that administers office. But uh, again, I really do think that it's all about um, making those relationships and starting from what one knows. So for example, we start our circle with those contracted partners and then those contracted partners identify who, uh, where the issues are and where there are gaps. And then we answer to those gaps by inviting more people to the table and saying, oh, we don't know much about mental health for whatever the case may be, like domestic violence issues in a specific community. Who are the people that we need to reach out to in order to provide more education, bring them to the table to educate this population what this means? And then I think that's how the table gets bigger and that's how more people get involved and address the specific issues of specific populations. Uh, in our state, we, for example, had, um, it, since I mentioned domestic violence, we had one group that we were experiencing that we or hearing from, from, um, from uh, service providers that there's this one refugee group that was experiencing a high degree of domestic violence based on the public safety calls and, and other things that they've seen. But we did not want to go back and prescribe this to the group, but instead wanted to learn from the group about what is happening and what makes them such a strong community, but where are the issues and the weaknesses that they see uh, that they're struggling with. So we had some just public forum meetings with this population to identify what their needs are. And then we started by you know, peeling the onion and helping them to identify those needs. And then we reacted to them by bringing the experts, not only from the state, but from community agencies and others to again, answer those. So I think the state refugee coordinators have a lot of say and a lot of power in helping to build those relationships and then using those relationships to help uh, navigate the, the, the issues and the concerns that the population may be facing. Great. Um, all right, so I'm going to do a few, touch a few points here, um, setting things up, I hope, for, for the three of you. So, Lily, I thought maybe you would be best to um, start us off on the questions that are asking about frequency, modality um, of meetings. That would be ideal, just given how many folks you interviewed for the report, and I know you heard about that. Um, we also have a number of questions about how to include refugee voice that I think um, Boyana and Anna, and Anna Marie, um, you know, will we'll, um, turn to you um, uh, with those. But then I just keep feeling looking at all the questions that, you know, in a way the report just kind of makes clear, wow, there's all these other systems and partners and how do you bring them to the table well? And, you know, then we're gonna try and talk now about bringing um, refugees in and the like. And then there's all the questions about new populations. So I think the whole issue of what would it look like to really resource this function, you know, to try and have folks feel that um, that the process is really robust and helping to solve problems um, is kind of where everything winds up. So I think I'll just ask all three of you, you know, to sort of make your way through like all these kind of demands and questions about um, if we are talking about how it should change, you know, in a sense, what do we know kind of structurally, the point I was um, gonna pitch to Lily um, right now, but then this question of refugee voice is such a big one, um, and then additional populations, and then also what is the, you know, how do we get to the kind of um, resource question I think is, is how I think we need to round the basis here um, uh, to do justice to all the questions coming in. So Lily, you first. Okay, <laughs> I will um, start with- Solve it all, you guys. Here we go, solve, 10 minutes. I'll solve the problem right now. Um, no, I, I will start with a couple of the logistical questions around what modalities are working and what cadence is working. Um, because I do totally see and understand the question on meeting fatigue. And I think it's a very legitimate um, concern amongst especially leaders that are typically represented in these meetings. 
So I think that's where the streamlining of processes becomes really, really important. Um, especially if you're just looking from a compliance perspective, um, if you're just trying to meet compliance standards, streamlining that is as quickly as you can is I think a wonderful approach to reducing some of that meeting fatigue um, because we know that informal and organic consultation is happening all the time as well in addition to those um, sort of formalized processes. On the subject of virtual versus in-person, I talk to people who are doing both and I think the downsides to virtual are definitely that you lose that human to human interaction and some of that relationship building that's really important. Um, but on the other side of the coin, virtual tends to have higher participation, higher representation because people don't have to travel and it's easier to just jump on a Zoom call. It's also nice to have some of those breakout functions to do topically oriented discussions that may be a bit harder to wrangle when you have a room full of 50 to 60 people. Um, but again, I think there's downsides to both and upsides to both. And I've noticed a couple of folks that do uh, hybrid modalities where they alternate between in-person and virtual. So it makes the, the lift of going to an in-person meeting a bit lighter if you're only doing it twice a year. Um, and the other question that you asked, Margie, that I'll address, because I do think Boyana and Anna Marie are better suited to talk about the centering of client voices in these processes. Um, <clears throat> I think that consultation, if it is better resourced and adapted to meet some of these larger tension points in the landscape, like new actors, new populations, I think that it would be wise for us to use an existing infrastructure that we already have and just build on that, create better technical assistance resources around it, resource it, guidance, all of your, your typical tools of the trade to try to expand a process rather than wiping the slate clean and rebuilding it from, from the bottom up. I mean, I think we've seen this work in Native American consultations between the federal government and tribal governments where that existing process has been, you know, in the books for a really long time, but it's been rewritten and adapted so frequently to reflect the needs of the people that are participating in it. And I think why why not do that with our, our refugee resettlement consultation processes, but I'll turn it over to Boyana or Anna Marie to weigh in. Yeah, it looks like I'm unmuted, so I will jump in. I was gonna talk about the, the refugee voices at, at USCRI, we do have refugee advisory councils to get refugee input. Um, I think that what I'm thinking now as we're talking is that they're kind of to the side. So it's that Refugee Advisory Council just speaking with USCRI. And so the thinking that I'm having now is, well, how do we move that Refugee Advisory Council uh, process that we have to be part of consultations? And I don't really, know what the answer is to that, but I know that we're we're getting the, the refugee voices there. And so it's how to, and I'm sure other resettlement agencies are doing this as well. So it's like, how do we then bring them to, to the bigger table? Um, but I'm hoping Boyana has some thoughts on, on times where they have had that work. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so I think let me just first uh, just mention the previous question on the meeting fatigue and and because I just want to put a point to that. Um, I I completely agree and I sometimes feel how overwhelmed uh, we are with a lot that is going on. But I will say and we a lot of times will cancel meetings when there's no need to talk. But I have to say that you know that doesn't happen that often. And so me saying a lot of times, it's not accurate. Sometimes we've canceled meetings in the past when there was no need for conversation. But for the most part, those who are part of those discussions want to meet because there's so much going on that they don't feel like, they feel that their time is best used discussing and talking and having a dialogue about what to do as opposed to, again, waiting for a quarterly consultation to happen. So I'm just going to say that on that on that front. Um, as it relates to uh, refugee voices, I think we've all struggled with that. Uh, QCs are, are not made 
to have a refugee voice present at those meetings and to have a meaningful discussion about refugee experience. So simply not. Again, we talked about being prescribed, one-way communication, all of that. And just logistically, it's it's not possible to do that. So I think what we're trying to do, or I know we're trying to figure out how to more organically um, in um seek that feedback from refugees that is not necessarily just surveying them about, you know, a list of questions about how you, you know, on a scale from one to 10, how you feel you've received services and things like that, but really sitting down and having a conversation about, you know, what worked and what didn't work, what works and what doesn't work is really what we're interested in. So we're currently exploring how we do that. We haven't done a good job in the past, except for doing some surveys and relying on resettlement agencies to tell us what the experience of the resettle of the refugees were. But we're starting to make a shift in, in thinking about how is it that we engage uh, directly in those conversations and 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 having some sort of a you know a, a community forum to just talk and on certain cadence to just talk about how it is that we want to hear from them directly. So no answer there, but there is effort uh, to to reach to the reach that point. Great. Well. Um, I want to promise everyone who's written in questions that we haven't gotten to that we will respond to them. Um, but we are at time. And so um, I think we'll be uh, wrapping up now. Thanks so much um, to uh, uh, Boyana and um, to Anna Marie. Um, just such a thoughtful conversation and so great to hear all of your experiences. And Lily, of course, everything, um, trying to share so much of what you learned with all of the um, the research and conversations you had with folks at all levels of the system um, as part of pulling uh, the report together. Um, there's a lot more going to be coming around this issue um, in terms of, you know, federal uh, sort of how, how the process continues to unfold and especially with the um, new pressures that are facing states. So uh, stay tuned. And um, in the meantime, you can see all these various links and uh, ways to um, to be in touch around these issues. But um, again, many thanks to everyone, um, especially since so many of you who joined us are working in the field and uh, doing so much to try and make um, these systems work. Take care, everyone. Um, stay in touch. Bye. Thank you. Bye.